episode 428 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views not held by our institutions, our friends, our clients, our family, or really even our pets. Joining me for the News Roundup, Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, and really a hundred other things. Jordan Schneider, who is the China Tech Analyst at the Rhodium Group and the host of the excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today. We're going to go back and talk about the China Tech ban for the third time, I think, in our row. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a new tech ban that we're seeing rumors of. It's not in place yet. Yes. Uh, getting at quantum computing and artificial intelligence. What's the plan there? I'm not sure entirely. I thought that's what the last one did. No, I mean, the last one was focused on chips, obviously. At least some of this sounds like it'll be a little bit more focused on software. What exactly that means, it sounds like they might may not even know. It sounds like they're still working out the details, talking to some folks in industry. It could be focused on certain types of software that you know China might want to utilize, either in hardware or in their software development, or it could be focused on finished products or all of the above and everything in between. It's a little hard to tell at this point. But, you know, I think it's indicative of the fact that, as we've talked about before, Stuart, I think the there's a growing consensus here in the U.S. in terms of sort of what the threat is and what the challenges we face with respect to China, particularly in the tech sector. You know, and that's one of relatively limited economic opportunity for America over the long term inside of China and a concerted effort by China to kind of, you know, replace us domestically and then attempt to compete with us internationally. And, you know, I think the challenge that that the Biden administration has here is in the short to medium term, there's still a fair amount of dependency between the two countries that provides an opportunity for them with moves like this, right, to slow China's uh, advancement of these emerging technologies. But it also poses risk for other aspects aspects of American industry, again, including the tech sector. And so I'm not surprised to see them continue to push forward with these types of steps. Those These kinds of steps carry carry risk. But I think on balance, you know, given what's at stake here with these types of technology and the risks associated with falling behind China in their development, you know, I think that's why you're seeing the Biden administration be so forward leaning with these moves. So, Jordan, you've got a good piece out on what a bombshell this was for U.S.-China tech relations. And you don't talk as much as I think maybe you could have about what kind of retaliation we should be looking for. China is nothing if not a believer in tit for tat. I And so the question is, what are they, you know, if you're on the National Security Council for the CCP, you have to have a list of options for retaliation. What What's on that list? Yeah, very briefly on the sort of bringing export controls to other markets piece. Semis is relatively straightforward to find choke points, but almost everything else is going to be a lot harder to sort of find a line that they think is defensible. I mean, talking about like software controls with all these AI models, like the dominant model may end up turning, may up turning out to be something that's open source that you can't even tell, you know, Google or Microsoft or OpenAI not to sell into China. So it's going to be a much, it's going to be a really difficult 
process for BIS to really figure out where exactly they're going to want to draw the line on those force models. Which is why they're talking uh, to the to the people who are trying to commercialize AI. Uh, they're, they're trying to yeah. find something that, that will work and be enforceable. So coming back to retaliation, what you would think of as sort of like straightforward and proportional and confined to the chip space or microelectronics space, all those options are really not great for the Chinese. So you have rare earths and semiconductor packaging, both of which, you know, if China shoots that gun, they can only really fire it once because and it'll, uh, it'll, it's, 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 a, it's a gun where the impact, the wound lasts a, a two or three years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you lose jobs, you lose market share and you lose leverage. So then you come to a sort of making the lives of Apple and Tesla and other firms that really rely and firms like down the stack that really rely on Chinese inputs, making their lives harder. But that, isn't uh, that the, the same problem? Is, problem? Um, you're, you're, you're basically saying we are an unreliable supplier. Flee, flee. Absolutely. So, you know, I got to thinking this week that, you know, maybe the escalatory step is one that's a little scarier, doing something like turning the lights off for a week or two in a in a leading fab in the U.S. Because this is kind of what the U.S. did. You know, not that there was a ton of sort of capacity already online, and I think it will absolutely be seen as a very escalatory step. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are at least some folks in, in Xi's National Security Council who are considering those types of measures just to make clear just how just how seriously the Chinese government takes these sorts of things. So I don't know. I don't I know a lot. I know something about fabs. And my impression is if you turned off power for a week, it might take you months to get back online because everything is so all that equipment is so delicate. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the first option that Jordan laid out, I think the challenge for China is also that it, it's going to re- require them to rely on international partners to to enforce that and make it a bit more effective. And I think whether they can muster that kind of support is still an open question. And I think that's, you know, you've seen the the Biden administration on our end trying to usher the troops and hold people together on some of this stuff. And I think that's still an open question a bit for them, too. Um, the second one, you know, I think the challenge for them is, you know, it kind of kicks us in the shorts and it may be worth doing, but it doesn't really, you know, in terms of these emerging technologies, do much to slow us down, right? And and I think the third option, I hope they're considering the fact that that could lead to escalation and cause a U.S. response that that to escalate things in a in what would be an unproductive way and again not necessarily advance china's goals in convincing us to back off or back down on some of these measures and doesn't really if your eye is on the prize of you know being the first and fastest to to these kinds of emerging technologies then i don't think any of this really advances china's goal on that front so yeah i mean you have these sort of new chinese government initiatives talking about sort of like like building new homes for foreign semiconductor FDI and and facilitating and and facilitating check transfer. I mean, like turning off the lights at home is not necessarily going to incentivize the likes of Samsung and TSM and, and Intel to do any sort of more tech transfer investment in China, which like may kind of be illegal anyways from now on for for anything you know yeah. relatively advanced 2018 forward so you know, it's a really tricky place the chinese government is in right now because well um, and, and it helps the u.s that their economy is struggling with the very aggressive covid measures that they've adopted and that it wasn't in great shape 
even before that, and that the tech sector is feeling unloved and worried about whether it'll really recover its investment if it pours money into more Chinese work. So yeah, it's a, it's a surprisingly bad time to be the leader of China. All right. Well, let me switch the focus to what China is doing already in the U.S. The Justice Department announced that they have indicted. I mean, in part of this, it's you know they've indicted some a couple of people, a couple of Chinese spies who are not in the United States and are not likely ever to be in the United States. So it's mostly a long press release about what they did. But yeah. what they did was, you know, kind of surprisingly aggressive. Or at least that's what I thought, Nate. Yeah, no, I agree. This relates to charges that were brought in 2019 and 2020 against Huawei. And as you alluded to, a couple of Chinese intelligence officers sought to bribe a U.S. law enforcement official for inside information about that case, seeking things like, you know, a lists of cooperating witnesses, potential forthcoming charges, documents related to trial strategy. The U.S. law enforcement official was working for us throughout this and cooperating with the U.S. government to to share information about what was going on. And they even planted some documents with the Chinese intelligence officials. These were um, fake, it was a fake page eight of, or something. Uh, yeah, a 27-page <laughs> trial strategy document. The indictment's a fascinating read. And, you know, it's not unusual for governments to attempt to impact the outcome of criminal prosecutions, right? There are times where we don't cooperate with requests for investigative assistance and things of that nature. You know, in cases like the the Griner prosecution in Russia, you have diplomatic overtures to try to head things off and avoid a, what in that case seems like a quite politically motivated prosecution. So it's not unusual for states to intervene, but to do so surreptitiously like this is somewhat unusual, I think. And quite brazen on the part of China. I guess a couple of things that I would be thinking about right now, if I'm defense counsel, I'm looking at everything Huawei has given me and said to me to see if I'm, you know, pregnant with some of this. And that, that is you know, a, that is a worry. Twice about whether I want to represent them. Yeah. In this, that's right? a, that's a, the, what, what the, the, there was a lot of emphasis in the indictment about how they were trying to find what witness lists and trial yeah. prep, prep plans. And a couple of statements where they said, the company wants to talk to you directly, but we told yeah. them no, because that's too risky. But certainly suggests that this information is not just being kept by the Chinese government for its own purposes. That's right. Yeah. And so I'd be a little worried if I was representing Huawei at this point, given what what has apparently transpired and is now public. And the second thing is, I think, as you said, this is a bit more of a press release. I think that the way it was wrapped up with the other indictments that tell a bigger story about China engaging in certain activities to, to undermine our judicial system and things of that nature is right. And for example, Chris Ray had a quote that, you know, there's evidence that the Chinese government threatening is threatening established democratic norms and the rule of law as they work to undermine U.S. security and fundamental rights, including those of Americans, and that their claims to stand for sovereignty and non-interference sort of seem to, to come to an end when the Chinese interests point in the other direction. And so they're happy to interfere in other states' affairs when it benefits them. And so I think that telling this public story is important. I think the way DOJ did it was quite effective by, like I said, packaging this up with a series of other indictments that, that are of a similar genre and tell a similar story. Yep. 
everybody is piling on China. There's a national intelligence assessment that is in the same vein, Jamil, basically talking about how China and Russia are expanding and their digital authoritarianism to new targets in the West. And I didn't, I wasn't surprised by anything I saw in there, were you? No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that we have known for a long time that China is seeking to expand what I would call sort of its repressive efforts, right? China engages in significant repression within its own country against whether you're talking about the Muslim Uyghurs in the Xinjiang province or what they did with with the democracy activists in Hong Kong or their threats against Taiwan. You know, we see China doing that. Now they're exporting that global, that rep- repression globally. And by the way, it's consistent with a larger trend that Odie and I also points to with other sort of uh, revisionist powers like Russia who are taking their own way that they treat their own people and now expanding it over into Ukraine. We've seen it with Iran in the past, their regional aggression, and now their involvement in the Ukraine fight alongside the Russians, and of course, North Korea and its constant set of threats with its with its nuclear capabilities and the consistent launching of, of ballistic missiles. So we see these regimes, you know, conducting themselves increasingly externally, uh, the way that they have long conducted themselves internally. And part of that, I think, is a response to America's failure to effectively deter this kind of behavior overseas and to punish it when it happens outside of those nations' borders. Yeah, and that's because it's not obvious how we should or what additional we can do. But I agree, we're going to see more of this and it's going to be more brazen and more painful for individuals and for companies that end up in the, uh, the sites of these governments. And we do need a better way to defend America when this happens. Although, you know, part of this is educational. I don't think anybody in the United States really understands how tough the next 10 years of relations with China are going to be. Nobody's exactly getting ready for it. Uh, And, you know, that's the way democracies work. We're asleep and we're asleep and nothing wakes us up. We hit the snooze alarm four or five times. And then finally we say, oh, cripes, those guys are just not going to go away. We're going to have to do something about them. So I can only hope that uh, this is like the third time we hit the snooze alarm and eventually we'll start getting serious about responding aggressively. You know, I do worry, Stuart, that you're exactly right. And this is, by the way, this is consistent U.S. behavior. It has been for generations, right? We don't wake up until the alarm actually goes off and or whatever, you know, bomb explodes, whatever the thing is. And I worry that with China, we're going to end up in the same place, right? We already saw what they could potentially do to Taiwan in terms of a blockade and the impact that will have on us. We saw that during the pandemic with PPE. And we're taught there's a lot of talk about supply chains. And yes, there's some movement, you know, with the bipartisan infrastructure law and the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. But let's be real. We are not doing what it takes to be resilient against a real supply chain threat from China. And that's a huge problem. It's one thing if they're making T-shirts and clothing. It's another thing when they're supplying us with a vast majority of processing for rare earth metals and they and countries within their nearby orbit, Taiwan in particular, are supplying us with the bulk of our semiconductors. And we're not, look, let's, these factories aren't going to be built here for, you know, five, 10 years. And then they're still going to produce the kind of, all the kind of semiconductors we need. So this is a huge problem. So this brings us, of course, to TikTok. Jordan, there was a really good article, I thought, in the Washington Post, really detailed looking into TikTok, its relationship with ByteDance, its relationship with the Chinese government, and pretty deeply reported on 
one, I have to call the complete disarray in the Biden administration to match the, the aimlessness of the Trump administration, uh, sort of free-floating hostility and no action with respect to, to TikTok. What, what, what did you take away as somebody who really understands the China problem? You know, Stuart, I've been coming on this show for two years now, and I think every other episode we have the same exact conversation about TikTok. Yeah, it's a problem. It is. And the Biden administration hasn't done anything about it yet. It's surprising because it's been a while. You know, there's sort of ebbs and flows of like why, when the media gets interested in this, when the Republicans get interested in this are a little mysterious to me. I mean, clearly, like the screams are coming from inside the House. The amount of reporting from this Washington Post article from Plas. Bloomberg and Forbes articles of what I can only assume are American employees of TikTok calling out to yeah. reporters saying, guys, like the, the current state of affairs is not a functional one. It sort of evinces the central problem that this is an incredibly powerful, influential platform, which basically has zero oversight right now. And, and Trump sort of was almost going to do something about it. Then he was going to do this weird Oracle deal. Then that fell apart. Then we had a coup. And, you know, here we are two years later. I mean, there was a really interesting piece in the New York Times, I believe, a few weeks ago, talking about the sort of internal administration deliberations, which I can only assume was sourced from Lisa Monaco, because the framing of the piece was saying, you know, she's raising her hand and trying to stop the train of them finding some sort of solution where like TikTok promises that like the data doesn't go into China or something, which I think is fundamentally untenable because the important thing is not the data, it's the control of the algorithm and the impact that, you know, that being able to, you know, dictate or nudge what 100 million potentially Americans see for 20, 30 minutes a day when they're sitting on the toilet can have on the on the discourse in the US. You know, the amount of sort of political discussion that is happening on this app sort of completely blows away the argument that TikTok has been trying to say for years that we're this sort of like joyous, happy, nonpartisan thing. And if it's sort of a central form for American political discourse, I don't really want, you know, the folks who own that to be subject and vulnerable to retaliation by authorities in Beijing. And, you know, hopefully the sort of all the whispers are building towards a more aggressive response than I think folks on the other side of the aisle were fearing out of the Biden administration. Yeah. So, Nate, it looks as though some of the internal disciplining at TikTok is taking the form of investigations for conflicts of interest. Yeah. <laughs> so they say this while TikTok was getting banned and then unbanned by by Trump in 2020, they made a bit of noise about hiring a, a former Air Force veteran and former law enforcement official from the U.S. to serve as their chief security officer. Now, after reportedly attempting to impose some discipline there, trying to sort out this question that Jordan talked about of how they're going to protect U.S. persons' data and EU persons' data and prevent it from going back to China, they decided to open several audits and make accusations against him about conflicts of interest for hiring Booz Allen and some other consulting firms, which, you know, whether he had conflicts or not, you know, a lot of those firms seem like obvious ones that a lot of companies turn to for this kind of stuff. So whether there's some minor conflict or not, I think those decisions can probably have innocent explanations as well. And so it, it does very much feel like this was retaliation and an effort to drive him out. So now we've got Beijing taking action against somebody who was reportedly trying to 
to bring the company closer in line to measures that might be acceptable to to the Treasury Department and the CFIUS Committee. And so I think, as Jordan was explaining, I think you know, the broader environment here of even just the things we talked about earlier in terms of the restrictions being posed on China, the efforts China is going to to undermine, you know, p- prosecutions here in the United States and so on and so forth are not going to help TikTok and ByteDance in this process. This story certainly isn't going to help them. But the flip side of that is since Trump made the decision to reverse the ban in 2020, the app has only grown in popularity. And there were reports at the time that one of the reasons he reversed course on that was because it was so popular with young people that he didn't want to be known as the guy who banned it. And and I think, you know, it is, we can say what you will about that, but I think that despite the fact that concerns have deepened about this, so has use and affinity for the app. And I think it's a tough position for the Biden administration to be in because there are real reasons to act here, but it's but action is probably going to have some cost domestically for them. Yeah. I don't know about that. You know, we have YouTube shorts, we have we have Instagram <laughs> reels, and this happened in India, right? They took it off, you know, they, yep. they had this border dispute and yeah. Modi three days later said, no, Chinese apps, not doing it. And there were domestic ones which sort of flourished very quickly after the fact. And yes, it is uncomfortable and awkward. And I think it would sort of be a better solution for a U.S. firm to just buy the business and not have ByteDance have to sort of like, you know, they've done an incredible thing creating this platform. And I think it's like not a great thing for capitalism to just sort of zap hundreds of something that's worth a hundred, hundreds of billions of dollars that really should have been taken, taken care of way before it got to But this, they're not going to get the algorithm. They, the, the, the Chinese government has already said that's a matter of national security, what we let your kids see. And so how much, how valuable is TikTok without the algorithm. I'm not sure there's that much there. That's, that feels like reels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think yeah. with the, with, if you get the data, right? Like, okay. yeah, maybe you'd be able to. Well, I, you know, maybe some fun with it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe this is what Elon Musk should be doing with uh, uh, Twitter. <laughs> yeah. turn, it, turn it into TikTok. <laughs> All right, we'll come back to Elon. Meanwhile, actually, we're we're there. Uh, his other company is facing criminal investigation. Nate, there's been so much complaining about full self driving as a a label that I guess it's not surprising that that he's being accused of misleading people. But a criminal probe strikes me as a little. Well, you can do it, right? The question is, is that the right uh, Is it going to go anywhere? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it is, they've certainly made some somewhat forward-leaning statements, but for every one of those, you know, you can find some carefully worded, heavily caveated statement that lawyers clearly had a chop on and, and frankly did their job on. And so I think if you look at the public record, it's a little, frankly, it's a little hard to see how they put together a criminal case, in my opinion. You yeah, know, and maybe they won't, to, right? It's easy to, it's easier to open a criminal probe than to, to bring an indictment. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's what I was going to say. I think there are two possibilities here. One is that this quickly fizzles out and doesn't really go anywhere. The other possibility is that there's more than meets the eye as to to what they've been doing. And there's other information that DOJ has or thinks it can obtain. But it seems pretty clear to me that for this to have legs, they're going to have to have other information. And and if there's pretty much anything that Elon Musk has said in private, he's also tweeted. So I'm not sure how much more there is. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Although his, his, his messages with some of the folks at Twitter and with Jack Dorsey that came out as a result of that lawsuit were a good read. It was enjoyable. So more of that, please. Okay. <laughs> I, so here's one that I, I begged Jamil to talk about. The story itself, I don't know the media that produced it, but it, the source is the Guacamaya uh, hacktivist group, so-called hacktivist group. And they've been producing a lot of stories that just barely failed to make our discussion four or five times over the last several months. This one deserves some coverage, and so does Guacamaya. Yeah, so, you know, uh, Stuart, what happened here is that uh, this organization is a hacking group. They were able to break into the uh, Ministry of National Defense's IT system, and they got some documents that indicated a Russian, that, that Mexican soldiers, I almost said Russian, because we've been talking about them so often, the Mexican soldiers actually sold cartels, one of the particular one of the particular cartels, weapons from the Mexican military supply stores, including fragmentation grenades. They sold, apparently, ostensibly sold 70 grenades for 26 thousand pesos uh, a piece, which is about $1,300 a piece, and that uh, the cartel bought at least eight of those grenades and they were actually delivered to them. Obviously, this, this is concerning, not just for uh, Mexico and what happens there, but uh, what's happening at our, in our border towns, our border communities, and threats to Americans in Mexico, and then, of course, Mexican citizens themselves. What's even more interesting is that a, a 2019 intelligence report obtained by another Mexican NGO, the Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity, identified that the Ministry of National Defense understood that additional material had been offered by a different soldier, including weapons and tactical gear, to a crime group around the same time frame. And so, well, actually, take that back. It's not clear whether it was the same soldier or not, but they were aware of something like this going on. And so there's a concern that they're aware this is happening and it either is allowed to happen or nothing gets done about it. There was also additional calls that were intercepted where a criminal leader in Mexico sought to buy 2,000 rounds of AK-47 ammunition, 5,000 rounds of AR-15 ammunition, and 50 magazines for those firearms. Unclear whether those actually delivered, but more and more. And then, of course, we've heard reports that guns purchased in the United States, including a a half-caliber gun uh, used by the Jalisco cartel to shoot down a Mexican military helicopter back in 2015, actually was purchased in Portland, Oregon. And so, you know, this combination of reporting here in just the last few weeks about Mexican cartels and where they're getting their weaponry from, obviously deeply troubling. Yeah, yeah. So the guys who made this public have done something similar to the Colombian government and to other governments, and they have a hacktivist feel, but you always have to ask, cui bono, who else might be getting some benefit from these leaks? And I'm not sure I see it. You know, there's, I guess, a certain amount of disruption of governments friendly to the U.S. is worthwhile if you're Russia or China. But these guys also seem to have a bit of a sense of humor. So I'm just not sure. Do you have a judgment on whether guacamaya is for real? I have the same take you do, which is you're always it's always important to look out for it and see if there's a nation state behind these so-called patriotic hackers or activist hackers or the like. In this case, I think your instinct is, is right that this is probably actually for real an activist group. But look, the you know, I mean, we know that the Mexican military has long had these challenges and had corruption issues. 
Interestingly enough, the most reliable force for the U.S. to work with in Mexico historically has been the Mexican Navy, interestingly enough, and they've been the most effective counter drug and counterterrorism task force there or running one of the most effective counter drug counterterrorism task forces in in Mexico. Well, let's turn to uh, questions of just how clean the American government is. There was a long story about Eric Schmidt, who used to be Google's CEO and has been CEO of other tech companies and made a a boatload of money. And, uh, you know, in what seemed pretty praiseworthy, has devoted a lot of his time and a lot of his money to working with the government about making sure that technology policy actually reflected the reality of technology companies. But he's now being accused of having chaired the an AI advisory committee while making a boatload of investments in artificial intelligence startups. And, you know, I'm of two minds about that. It's not clear to me that He shouldn't have done that, but you can see that it would be awkward for him to be advising on how badly we need to pay for investment and at the same time benefiting from any payments we make on investment. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that's important to point out here is that this is an outside advisory board that provides advice, but it doesn't have any actual direct authority over procurements or spending levels or anything like that. But yeah, is it a conflict? Of course it is on some level. Is it the most egregious example I've seen of conflicts of interest in D.C.? Absolutely not. You've got members of Congress trading stocks are going to be impacted by the legislation they're passing. You've got Jared Kushner with $2 billion from the Saudis. You've got company employees sometimes and executives serving on similar boards like this. I think I think one of the challenges is that, as I think you were alluding to, Stuart, you don't have a ton of people out there with expertise like Eric Schmidt has. and Who are willing know, to give it away, to, basically. Yeah. And unless you're going to force him to divest of all of his financial interests to provide advice, you have to rely on these people to make sensible policy to some degree, I think. Well, and they disclose, right? The the one clear remedy for possible conflicts is to disclose, and the issue of the agency probably can issue waivers, or it may just say the disclosure is enough. Yeah. And typically, in even in these advisory board roles, people do have to make those kinds of disclosures. And I think that's where I was going, is I think that kind of transparency is important. I don't necessarily think people on the receiving end of this always are as skeptical of some of the advice they receive from people like Eric Schmidt and take their honesty and their virtue for granted. And I think it's important not just for the transparency to occur, but but for the policymakers on the other side of the table to to be constantly thinking about, are they telling us this because it's good for America? Or are they telling me this because they have financial interests of some sort that are at stake here? And I think it's unlikely that you're going to be able to remove those conflicts entirely from this space. But but I think as long as uh, folks know about them and are appropriately cautious about the advice that they're receiving from people like this, that's about as good as we can do, I think. Yeah, I think you're never going to get away from some kind of conflict. And so you just need to be appropriately skeptical whenever anybody gives you advice, uh, including including exactly. the people who work for you uh, <laughs> in government. Uh, including the four of us. Uh, exactly. Okay, let's do a little cybersecurity. TSA has unveiled its cybersecurity directive for railroads, and 
in contrast to the reaction of the pipelines, it got pretty good reviews. Jamil? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, Stuart, good reviews, you know, I mean, I think there, there's a question there, right? I think there's a few things to say about these new guidelines and regulations. One, there is a discussion about, about the need for these railroads to segment out their, nail, their networks and what exactly that means and how that works, I think, is an issue of some debate. There are folks who, who view the and read the regulations as requiring segmentation that would divide up the IT and the OT, the operational railroad networks, the switching networks. And there's significant skepticism that that's feasible in the modern environment, particularly as you need to monitor tracks all around all around your network. Whether that trying to create that kind of segmentation is simply just you know a, a test for the uh, unwary and will just ultimately fail. And so really building in resilience in what are going to be converged ITOT networks, whether that's a smarter approach. But I think what's interesting about this, this the, these regulations coming out from TSA, I think people think that they've done better than expected, but that's not saying necessarily that these are good regulations, right? Better than expected for TSA is great, but it's it's not clear that this will not simply create once again a culture of compliance, which means that you're just be you know, sort of box checking, or as it's in England, box ticking, you know, and not really getting to better cybersecurity. And I think that's one of the challenges the government's going to face as it increasingly regulates in this space, which is it's going to set, you know, guidelines and rules and people will come up to them. And ultimately, because technology is going to outpace the rules the government sets and will not keep up with them, people will be checking those boxes and getting to those minimum level requirements, spending lots of money to get there, and then ultimately probably not having the cybersecurity we want and we'll still see incidents. I mean, I think that's really the fundamental challenge with these efforts. And I actually think what's interesting about this, this is really the beginning of a larger process because I think you're going to see the national cybersecurity strategy come out here in the next few weeks, maybe the next few days. And I think the likely result of that is more cyber regulation come out of this administration rather than less. I, it's my sense they're going to call on agencies to use the regular authorities more, regulatory authorities more aggressively as the TSA is doing here. Yeah, this, I would say this is the first stage of regulation. There was, there was a quote in which an industry spokesman said, this is what the responsible parts of the industry are already doing, which means that it's not regulation that's raising the bar except for a few outliers. And it may just be box sticking or it may be the most convenient and least expensive forms of cybersecurity that people could adopt. But you probably have to go through that stage if you want to get to something that's tougher. And I'm not sure you want to get to something that's tougher, but it is it is real politic that you have to have a set of regulations in place so that if they fail, you can tighten them as opposed to having to draft them from scratch when you have a problem. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there's no question getting ahead of it is a better move, but it's not clear to me that we're going to net net result in longer term better cybersecurity. And that's one of the ongoing tussles. You know, everyone says, look, there is a market failure here because we're not getting the level of cybersecurity we would expect or want in industry, whether it's railroad or any other industry. But the question then is, okay, if there really is a market failure, then is government regulation going to be able to correct that? And if so, what is the nature of this market failure? It may just be that this level of cybersecurity is what the market wants. And maybe maybe we're wrong that we deserve or need better cybersecurity. That's the that's I think the big question on the table. What's most cost effective in this space? I think everyone agrees, broadly speaking, so at least folks in the cyber industry agree that we should see better defenses. The question is at what cost? Yeah. Okay. Last topic before we just do some quick updates. I thought I'd give you all a chance to to tell me how you think Elon Musk is doing now that he's actually taken over Twitter. He hasn't done much. He only did a, he only took over on Friday. But, you know, I guess my overall reaction is 
it takes a lot to make me feel sorry for Elon Musk, but I kind of do. <laughs> All right, Nate. What do you think? I, I know you're a uh, you're. you're <laughs> oh, no, no, no! Stay, stay on that, Stuart. What do you mean? <laughs> this is a Greek tragedy in which his strengths and weaknesses have produced a disaster for him. Right? His strength was self-confident, fast decisions, bold undertakings. And so he said, uh, yeah, I'll buy that. And you, you know, don't give me this crap about, uh, you know, you're going to put me into due diligence hell. I'm just going to buy it without due diligence. And at the same time, the market is tanking. He's had to put all of his money into this essentially. And now he's put so much debt into the company that it's very hard to see how he actually makes the company survive and prosper. So it does seem to me that he's at real grave risk of a financial meltdown here. I did sort of enjoy some of his tweets after the the bird was set free, but that's a that's pretty cold comfort when you're losing billions of dollars in market capital. I agree. I think the investment seems crazy and very risky. He mainly bought himself a problem that early indications are maybe he doesn't even want to really own as he's now set up some kind of outside advisory committee to help him sort through some of these problems about content moderation. So I think on some level, he's he's failed to live up to his own commitments, as you were suggesting, and might not be as bad as some folks feared. When you look at some of his moves or reports about how he thinks about some of his moves in terms of removing you know, some of the executives and claiming it was for cause so he doesn't have to pay them their golden parachutes or you know, trying to fire boatloads of employees before their, uh, I guess, tomorrow's stock vest date. It turns out in running the business, he basically is the asshole we all thought he is who doesn't think the laws and rules apply to him. And so, so I think in some ways he's been very much on brand and in other ways he's, he seems to have at least initially strayed from his brand. But I think the, on that front, the jury's still out. You may see some real changes on content moderation. Yeah. I mean, the one angle that I think you know, got a little bit of press coverage and may likely get a lot more in the coming weeks is the China vulnerability that Elon has, given Tesla's dependence on a sort of manufacturer and you know sales in mainland China. And you know you've seen him pick fights with lots of people. None of them happen to be senior Communist Party officials. To what extent that ends up playing out in potential policy changes on on Twitter is something that I'm going to be following pretty closely in the months to come. Yeah, my guess is he can keep going on the, you know, the fake accounts from China front as Twitter has pursued them, because I just don't see that as being, it's not even a third level priority for the Chinese government, yeah. you know, getting stuff onto Twitter um, so that it can influence the debate here. That's a long way from their core interests. And since Twitter doesn't show up much in, in China, they're not going to be worried about the content is my guess. I think you're probably right. But sort of the, one question that I have is like when you fire a lot of people, you know, some things might start running better, but other things might start running worse. And one of the things that Twitter spends a lot of time on is bringing down sort of botnets from lots of other state actors around the world. Uh, you guys talked about a few weeks ago, the fact that they found like a US botnet. I imagine those people who do that sort of work are not necessarily profit centers for Twitter. So if I was uh, sort of just like 
looking at the $20 billion hole in my wallet that this purchase has burned in me, I might be very tempted to cut back on some of that sort of activity to make sure that the discourse isn't overly dominated by state interests. I mean, there's a real tension there between like taking down the bots and like letting in free speech and not censoring. And solving that is going to be a really tricky thing, especially if you're slashing headcounts by a half in the coming months. Fair enough. I agree with you that it will be tempting to save money and create less tension with China by cutting some of that out. Yeah, it's going to be tough. He's got the world's most aggressive audience because everybody in the media already hates him and is looking for a reason to dump on him. So this, this he's going to have a, a tough audience. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, he's got this content moderation board, as you guys were talking about, that he's going to create that's going to have a diverse set of viewpoints. And I mean, it, it, now he's got this whole crew of VCs and former executives from Silicon Valley companies that are there at Twitter hanging out, advising him, right? I mean, this is a very strange scenario. And all of this is playing out while he's on Twitter setting out these, you know, some mix of his own version of misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, it is, this is a fascinating social experiment as we're watching play out and over one of our really important platforms. So, or maybe important is not the right way, very populated platform, at least, if not, if not important. And so it's, it is fascinating to watch. And for all of his criticism of some of the other CEOs and players in this industry, he seems to be doing a lot of the same things, bringing in a, you know, a council of people to advise him and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, Elon may not be that different than everybody else. Yeah. I, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the Jared Kushner thing where we're just going to like bring in all my friends and like save America. I mean, it probably is a better chance of working when it comes to managing a software company than it does with, you know, U.S. bureaucracy. Hey, but we, it's going to be fascinating. Didn't we get the Abraham Accords out of that? That, that worked Abraham, out right. <laughs> I knew it. Abraham Accords. We, it was, you know, it like everyone was very skeptical, right? As was I of Jared Kushner. But like. You know, that was, I think, I think everyone would agree at this point, like the Abraham Accords are a net win, yeah. right? Okay. All right. Let me do the three quick updates. The FTC, we've told you that they were talking about imposing their obligations under the consent decrees, not just on the company, but on the CEO. They have picked a CEO, James Corey Rellis, who's the CEO for a, a liquor delivery company called Drizzly, and said uh, uh, all of the obligations that we're imposing on the corporation are going to be imposed on the CEO. And uh, I understand why they did it, because they're looking at really rich people who don't care or who uh, they fear don't care when they're one company out of 12 that they have invested in and co-founded that gets hit. And so they want to they wanted to reach Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, instead, they're just reaching random CEOs. I think it's a little bit dumb, and there was a Republican dissent from this, but it probably won't make much difference in anybody's life. So point one. Clearview AI got hit with a fine in France, the maximum possible GDPR fine. And I thought that was interesting because Clearview AI does no business whatsoever in France. They probably had some French people in whatever databases they looked at when they were scraping them for their machine learning exercise. But they basically said, well, we don't do business there. We're not going to show up. And France is trying to make the point that if you do that to them, they will hit you with the biggest possible fine. Good luck enforcing that. I don't see how they do enforce that. But it's an interesting confrontation between the French view that 
you know, anything French must be subject to our jurisdiction and a much more technical American legal approach. And then finally, Liz Truss's phone, it turned out, was hacked and, you know, to a fairly well, according to the BBC. And I guess I would just say we ought to make this public safety announcement. Given the risk of compromise of your prime minister, you should change one every 45 days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks to Nate, to Jamil, and to Jordan for joining us. Uh, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at septoa.com. Rate the show. Give us a, a review. And if we like it, we'll read it on the air. Here's one from Jane Gents. Uh, says, Stuart, 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 lover of EU regulations, usually has top-notch guests. So please have fewer, please, so they can speak more. And I'm sure... All of our guests join you, Jane Jen, in that view, but we can't get rid of any of them. We just have to get rid of me, probably. Uh, and I hesitate to have a uh, plebiscite on that, too. Okay, uh, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 428 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.